Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists and food makers, farmers, authors and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. Taking a bite out of summer this weekend, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio, a very happy 4th of July weekend. And at chefjamie.com this week, you'll find warm weather-inspired recipes and cocktails like my grilled blue cheese and bacon-stuffed mushrooms, strawberry banana muffins, and ooh, a coffee and cream granita. So check it out, www.chefjamie.com. And find my daily culinary posts on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. This is a true culinary exploration. I'm all about delectable dishes, exquisite gastronomic experiences, and living the best life. So if it's rich or savory or just downright delicious, you are going to hear about it here. And summer is heating up, so you know I love fun, fast summer bites and I love great grilled things. I grabbed my keys and I ran out to buy oysters this past week. All right, let me go back a bit. In the seaside village of Marshall, California, the oyster beds are prized and plentiful, but it reminded me of a great summer ritual. And so now here I sit with you in the radio studio and wherever you are on July 4th weekend, I want to wax poetic on the beauty that is a grilled oyster. So here are a few tips to start, because there might be nothing better than slurping an oyster out of its shell with the smoky goodness that the grill imparts. And West Coast oysters are best when it comes to grilling. Now, the East Coast oysters, I love them too, but they're smaller and they tend to have a little bit more minerality. Now, West Coast oysters, they are plumper and creamier and it makes them even more desirable for the grill. So you always want to look for the bivalves that are West Coast originated when it comes to grilling oysters. And you want to look for deep cups so that you can preserve that prized liquor. Now, you always want to bring on the heat when you're grilling oysters. It's all about speed, by the way. The last thing that you want is an overcooked oyster that's gone rubbery. So high heat and an attention to detail will reap you great rewards when grilling oysters. So this is how you grill an oyster. You heat your grill until it's nice and hot, and you shuck as many oysters as you feel you can keep track of, because to avoid overcooking, it's really better to work in small batches when you're grilling oysters. Now, if you're new to shucking, take it slow, protect your hand with a glove, use an oyster shucker, of course, and you can check out chefjamie.com for instructions on how to shuck an oyster. You discard the top shell, the flatter shell, and then you leave the oyster in its bottom bowl-like shell. And you add a tablespoon of butter to each raw oyster. Now, I like a compound butter made with garlic and herbs, uh, but it's up to you. And a chef's note, by the way, you can always gild the lily by adding grated Romano or Parmesan cheese like they do in New Orleans. That makes the ultimate oyster, in my opinion. Then you place the oysters on the grill and you cook them for about three to four minutes. You close the grill, by the way. And three to four minutes later, you open up the grill and you should see some caramelization in the butter around the edges of the oyster. Now, this is the time when you could add more cheese or additional flavor, but 
you do want to, I believe, be minimal in that you want the flavor of the oyster to come out. And if it isn't overcooked, you get this wonderful texture and flavor combination that is out of this world. Now, serve your grilled oysters immediately as soon as they're cool enough to pop in your mouth and you want to have plenty of crusty bread on hand to mop up the leftover butter. Now, here's uh, an additional chef's tip. You can actually grill oysters whole. And this is a great tool for those that aren't shuck masters. If you love grilled oysters and you don't want to shuck them, you lay the oysters on the grill with their bottom shell down, the bowl-like side down, of course, and you close the lid of the grill and you check them about every 60 seconds. And as soon as you see the top shell loosen, because the heat from the grill actually forces the oyster open, you remove the oysters from the grill, you pry off the top shell, and you eat, of course. Or if you want a shortcut, you could grill the oysters in their shells until the top shells loosen. You could pry off the tops, then fill them with the butter, and grill the oysters accordingly. So, If you're not running out to your fishmonger right now to buy some oysters, I'm not sure why. They sound so good, right? But I would love to know how your grilled oysters do turn out. So please email me anytime at jamie at chefjamie.com. Okay, moving on. Summer screams for cool drinks and backyard barbecues. It's a perfect pairing, really. And There's a question out there, of course, as to how you can elevate your seasonal cocktails. For me, it's all about staying cool. Now, for years, leading bars have taken great pride in maintaining a cutting-edge cocktail program. But in the past few years, ice has become the hot topic, since everyone's looking at new ways to impress when it comes to keeping your drinks cool. So, don't sweat those rising temperatures. Just drop one of my ice cubes infused with fruits or veggies or herbs into a tall glass of water and you can watch the heat melt away. Better yet, make your own seasonal cocktails come alive by creating flavor-infused ice cubes yourself. I guarantee, by the way, that you will have your guests saying, wow, so how do you do it? This is what I like to say will make you a culinary hero. You can pack leaves of fresh mint into oversized ice cube trays and fill them with water and then freeze them. Think about the mojitos those will make, right? I happen to love how the icy cold hint of mint unravels into a drink with each sip as the ice cubes dissolve and disperse. And you can actually infuse cubes with lots of edibles, herbs, edible flowers, even fruit. Now, when it comes to an ice cube tray, we've come far from the plastic standard. And the silicone ice molds today really do give you um, a better handle at making sure that the ice forms beautifully and that your infusions or the aromatics, the herbs, the fruit, or otherwise that you're using become suspended within the cube itself. So it's an inexpensive investment to purchase some silicone ice trays. And I guarantee you that your ice cubes will be more brilliant because of it. From a a tall pitcher of lemonade to a fresh glass of water with that thin slice of lemon in the ice cube just to freshen up the taste, you'll see a world of difference. And it, again, is so ultra impressive. Now, for cocktail inspiration, 
I happen to be a vodka girl. So my new summer drink is what I call a vodka nut. It's a vodka with coconut water ice cubes. And I like to use those little coquito nuts as the garnish. You could call it a vodka nut or a vodka nut, but the vodka coconut combination is outrageous. So you make coconut water ice cubes using, of course, everyone's favorite uh, hot trend beverage, and that is coconut water, which they do say hydrates you better than any other liquid. And I make my coconut water ice cubes just by pouring the coconut water straight into the ice cube trays. Think about making sriracha ice cubes next time you put out a Bloody Mary bar. Oh, yes. The possibilities are really endless. And I put together some of my best suggestions based on inspiration from the trendiest bars across the U.S. Now, don't forget if you need a a shortcut, let's say you forgot to make the infused ice cubes in time for the party, or uh, you just haven't gotten around to it yet, although I know you will because it will make your summer truly spectacular. I wanted to give you a quick hack. I like to make what I call boozy ice pops. It's a great starter for a party and it's a great ending or dessert as well. And the shortcut here is that you buy fruit flavored popsicles just in the frozen food section of your supermarket and you pour the best cava or prosecco or, you know, good valued sparkling wine that you have into large wine glasses. And then you stick a fruit flavored popsicle already made for you into the glass. I will say, The popsicle melts slowly into the sparkling wine and you can munch on the popsicle all the way through and it is pretty delicious. So it will too keep you cool and chilled. And that is today's conversation on Ice Ice Baby. And don't touch your dial because there's lots more to satisfy your cravings coming up. Meathead Goldwyn is stopping by next. We're sharing the science of great barbecue and grilling and chilling. Also, we'll talk about everyday whole grains with Ann Pittman. And before the end of the hour, mix up a refreshing cocktail or two. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. I'll be right back. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. This show is a true culinary exploration. And grill masters rejoice because the barbecue whisperer is here. You got to love that <laughs> moniker, right? His name is Meathead Goldwyn. Yes, they call him Meathead. And he makes amazing ribs and brats and short ribs and lamb lollipops. And he is the biggest name in grilling. He's all about the science of great barbecue. And from the founder of AmazingRibs.com, the hugely popular website, comes a new cookbook, a comprehensive guide to becoming a 
Master Griller. The book is called Meathead, The Science of Great Barbecue and Grilling, and it is the much-anticipated release of the book that food lovers and barbecue connoisseurs are so excited about. Meathead is here to share his passion for the grill with sauce stains on his shirt and tongs (laughs) in hand. Hey there, Meathead. How are you? I'm great, Chef Jamie. What a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, it's my pleasure, too. Congrats on the book. This is a labor of barbecue love, is it not? Oh, it is. You know, it's a dirty job, but somebody had to do it. (laughs) You were happily doing it. I know you were. You were licking the sauce off that collar. You bet. Yeah, for sure. Um, Okay, one of the things I found most interesting about the book itself, and your many years of grilling, but very diverse background as well. You uh, honed your skills and uh, have a long tenure of teaching in uh, the study of wine and beer, and then barbecue, which seems a very perfect segue to me. But aside from just the recipes themselves, you are very technique-driven, and you are busting barbecue myths in the book. And I was really surprised by some of them, and I wonder, are, are you getting a lot of interesting feedback, or have you over the years, about your approach to grilling? We're in an age of highly technical-oriented people. Yes, People really are interested in knowing why things happen, not just how things happen. We see it in the popularity of, 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 of Harold McGee and his um, uh, mm. landmark book on food and cooking and all the food science therein. We see it in the popularity of Alton Brown and Cooks Illustrated. And now mm. Kenji Lopez-Alt's book, The Food Lab, just won Cookbook of the Year. People are really interested in food science, and there's a real strong food science bent to my book, and I try to bust what I call the old husband's tales of barbecue, (laughs) because barbecue is interwoven with myth and mystique, much of which just doesn't hold up now that we have the means to test them. Yeah, I think that's so interesting. By the way, uh, you're in good company, or we could say Kenji was, uh, because he was uh, recently on this show, um, graced this show, and I was delighted to have him. He is the cutting-edge modern uh, gastronomer, you could call him. And I thought his foreword to your book um, was really well-written. I'd like to bust some of the myths, please, Meathead. First and foremost, I have been telling people for a long time that meat is best cooked from room temperature. Like the prime rib you put into the oven at the holidays will cook more evenly and get a better crust if it's at room temperature. But you say, uh, oh, no way, that a a steak on the grill should go on preferably chilled? First of all, I had to test it. Hmm. I took a steak, a one-inch thick steak, and then I took a (laughs) 10-pound pork uh, roast. Of course you did. uh, Pork shoulder. (laughs) stuck thermometers in them, and measured how long it took the cake to, to, to come to room temperature. A roast takes 10 hours to come to room temperature. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it just takes forever. This, you know, meat is 70% water. And water's a fine insulator. That's why it takes so long to cook. Um, it just takes forever for stuff to come to room temperature. And while it's coming to room temperature, of course, microbes love to multiply. They double it about uh, every 20 minutes. Now, you'll kill them once they get into heat, but it's still not a safe practice to leave it sit around. And when it comes to cooking on the grill, we have learned that 
smoke is attracted to cold surfaces. It's called thermophoresis. So if you're going to cook outdoors, one of the reasons to cook outdoors is there's a spice that you can add to your retinue that is not available indoors, and that's smoke. And smoke sticks better to cold surfaces. So I advise people, when you're cooking outdoors especially, don't bother letting it come to room temp. Get it right outside. You'll get more of a smoky flavor. You have less of a contamination risk, and it takes it, it doesn't take nearly as long. Uh, this will not be, by the way, the last you hear of Meathead on this show, uh, because, yes, uh, just another month or so from now, I'm hoping you'll come back, Meathead, and um, we'll have a, a deep debate of beer can chicken. But leave us with this. The one... Uh, I think most extraordinary lesson that I learned from the beginning of the book, and mind you, I am still using my bedtime reading um, (laughs) as a a way to, to master the barbecue um, as I am reading meathead page by page late at night um, was the low and slow then seer concept. This is very different than what we've been taught to uh, grill Great crusted, great seared, beautiful on the outside, juicy on the inside steaks. So if you would, leave us with this concept of uh, low and slow and finishing fast. Yeah, well, we're taught to sear first and roast second. And, of course, this is a great concept if, for example, you're going to do something in a uh, stew pot. You want to sear first because that gives you the fond in your pot and it gives you all those nice flavors. But one of the problems you face when you're working on a grill is, um, or, or in, again, another dry cooking method, is that if you lo- load up the exterior of the meat, remember, people have to remember, hot air cooks only the outside of the meat. The hot air doesn't cook the inside of the meat. Hmm. The inside of the meat is cooked by the outside of the meat. It's conduction from the surface down to the center. So your hot air is cooking the outside of the meat. Then the outside of the meat moves the heat down to the center. And if you cook very hot, what happens is you get a dark crust on the outside. Then you get a brown layer just beneath it. Then you get a tan layer beneath that. Then you get a pink layer beneath that. Hmm. And finally in the center, your steak is medium rare. But you've got half the steak is overcooked. Now, how do you get the whole steak properly cooked? The way to do that is you cook the inside and the outside separately. You gently start the meat in an indirect zone, away from the hot fire. You can allow smoke to circulate and give it flavor, but you gently warm the meat so that it's the same temperature edge to edge. And you've got a genius master griller by your side. That's what you are, meathead. I have to say, it has been... Oh, I still have to take out the trash at night. Yeah, well, you know, we all do, right? <laughs> it has been an enlightening experience for me, and I have learned so much, and for that, I am grateful. I am very appreciative that you shared your passion here in our radios. I congratulate you on the book. You can learn more about Meathead's trials and tribulations and beautiful barbecue on his website, AmazingRibs.com and you will hear him here once again as we continue to savor the summer. Meathead, I'm so glad to talk with you. Always a pleasure, and come back soon, please. Well, thank you, Chef Jamie. Yes, my pleasure. What a great time, and it's so great to talk to somebody who really knows cooking. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. As the delicious conversation continues, there's more right after this. 
Welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Healthy, hearty, and versatile. Whole and ancient grains are fast becoming staples in our kitchens, aren't they? And if you love barley and millet and farro and more, well, then this next conversation is for you. Cooking Light Magazine's executive food editor and James Beard award-winning author Ann Taylor Pittman is reinventing how we cook with grains. And the book is really beautiful. Wait till you see it. Ann Taylor Pittman is here to dish. And I'm glad to have you, Ann. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Would you start out by filling us in on a, a few of the ancients that are maybe getting attention very much so right now? Sure, yes. And, you know, it's such a great time because... So many more grains, whole grains, are available now than ever before. Isn't that um, true? A lot of what has fueled that has been the interest in gluten-free products, mm-hmm. um, because a lot of these ancient grains happen to be gluten-free. Um, so one I'll talk about is amaranth. I see amaranth popping up in everything from snacks to um, porridge mixes to um, uh, actual breakfast cereals mm-hmm. that you buy and pour in your cereal bowl. Amaranth is really fun. It's a tiny little grain, um, and because it's so small, I like to use it, and I've included this in the book, as uh, breading. So you can use it just uncooked, just the raw grain as breading, because it's really crunchy, but it's so small that it's not going to break your teeth um, if you use it uncooked. But it's also really versatile because you can pop it, and it pops to this wonderful, fluffy, light um, texture. Mm. And you can also cook it um, like you would a, a porridge or an oatmeal, and it has this kind of nice, creamy um, texture. Um, let's see. I'm also seeing a lot of millet, which um, has a wonderful kind of neutral flavor. So if I can just get back to amaranth for a second. Amaranth <laughs> has a very pronounced, grassy, kind of yes. reedy, earthy flavor. It's very bold for a grain. Quite yes. bold. <laughs> and um, I found that when I was working with the flour, that taste just kind of overwhelmed everything. And so what I did was I toasted the flour in the oven, which took a little bit of the edge off that grassiness and just created this wonderful nutty, toasty flavor. Mm. So in contrast, millet is an ancient grain that is very mild and neutral, um, it cooks up to look almost like couscous, so it's this little kind of beige, little, um, little these little pellets, and they're just wonderful. Um, it's nutty, gluten free, a yes. little bit nutty, Anne. I like that about bit. millet. Yep. Yes. It's um, it's a very kind of family friendly <laughs> grain if you're looking to kind of expand your family's repertoire because nice. the flavor is so um, neutral and so pleasing. So one of the um, ancient grains that I love, and this one um, is not um, gluten-free, but uh, rye berries I love because they are really wonderfully chewy and they have just um, this great kind of slightly, slightly tangy flavor. And they work really well in soups and salads, and I just love the texture. And I love that you're pickling them, by the way, <laughs> yeah. because we're yeah. seeing rye everywhere. I think, interestingly enough, with the rise of the... Um, conversation of craft beer and the artisanal approach, this flavor of rye has gone way beyond rye bread and beer making. And now we're seeing rye used in a lot of other ways. And I love the idea that you pickle a rye berry so that you get that contrasting flavor. It's wonderful. I was just thinking, you know, as I was working on the recipes for this book, some grains are chewy. So you spend a little time with them, you know, (laughs) as, as you chew them. 
And I thought, well, how do you make that chew a little more interesting? Mm. So pickling came to mind. Nice. Um, it's a great technique for adding a lot of flavor without necessarily adding a lot of, like, fat or sodium or calories. It's a wonderful flavor-boosting technique. Yeah, lovely. Um, okay, with all of these grains comes a necessary cooking method. And in the book, you share quick tips to cooking whole grains. And there are three methods. Mm-hmm. We all know the pasta method, right? Where you cook in a, a bountiful amount of water and then you drain right. off the excess. Right. Then you can actually cook according to a precise measurement where the grain absorbs all the liquid as yep. well. Um, and then there's this wonderful idea, um, which I, I think is really interesting. I mean, you cook like a, a pilaf. There, there's lots of different ways. But the porridge mm-hmm. style um, right. that you speak to as well, what is your preferred method? Or is there a general method that sort of encompasses the overall? That's a little tricky, and I, I'm afraid <laughs> I can't quite pinpoint one specific. I, I think it depends on the grain you're working with. Okay. So I would say with a pasta-style method where you're cooking in, like you said, a bountiful amount of water, I recommend that for grains that take a long time to cook. So this will be for, like, those rye berries or wheat berries or sorghum. And I recommend that because it's hard to predict because they're cooking for such a long time how quickly they're going to absorb the water. You run the risk of scorching the um, the grains if the water dries out. So the pasta-style method is great for those. The pilaf-style method where you're cooking in a, a precise amount of water, you're, um, you're covering the pot, that's when you want like this loose, fluffy, separate um, texture, and that works great for quinoa, and um, quinoa is the main one, I think, um, yes. but also farro, grains like that. And then porridge-style, I would say, when you want something kind of creamy and you have grains mm-hmm. that lend themselves to releasing more starch, mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I'm thinking kind of like you can compare it to the way that um, that rice behaves in a risotto. Um, the porridge method works really well because it creates a creamy pot. And so that would be your oats and that amaranth, um, mostly, mostly those. I love your recipe for maple swirl oatmeal with apple bacon relish, as long as we're on oats. Yeah. That sounds decadent, and I can't wait to make it. It is, and you know, I think like I, sometimes people are surprised that at Cooking Light we use bacon. We do um, <laughs> because life is is no fun without bacon. Because life is short. I agree. Yeah, exactly. There's and a- there's a way to use it where it's a flavor accent, and you're using a small amount, but mm-hmm. using it in a wise way so that you get the most um, flavor impact. And that smoky flavor contributing to the bright apple and the richness yeah. of the oatmeal sounds indulgent in and of itself. Um, I want to take a step back. There are processes to cook grains in water, but Mm -hmm. we all know that you can pop corn, but who knew that corn is not the only grain that pops? So I read the popped sorghum instructions twice because I can't (laughs) wait to make, I love anything crunchy, Anne, that Mm -hmm. topping, that textural uh, addition, that component of crunchy from one single ingredient. I, I think that's brilliant. So just talk us through it. I love it. And there are some grains that pop better than others. So in the book, I've focused mostly on 
popcorn, sorghum, and amaranth because I found those to be the easiest to work with for popping. So sorghum is, if you're not familiar with it, it's this little grain that looks a little bit like dried um, Israeli couscous. Yes, the little round ball. Little round balls um, with a little sort of dot, a dark Mm -hmm. dot in the middle. Um, It's a really hard grain, and it takes a long time to cook if you're boiling it. Um, But I do love it um, because it has like this pasta-like starchiness. It's Mm -hmm. wonderful. Um, But you can pop it in a little bit of oil, and it pops to what I call baby popcorn. It's crunchier than, than, you know, popcorn that you make from corn kernels. It's crunchier. It's smaller. It is adorable. Um, (laughs) It makes a really kind of um, great statement as a garnish on, say, a creamy um, butternut squash soup or um, something like that. Okay. I'm in. I did rabbit ear the crispy herb salmon page because I love that idea of using a grain in place of a breadcrumb, especially for the gluten-free substitute. And you share lots of tips as to how we can crust a beautiful piece of fish and get texture and moisture and flavor. And then leave us with a sweet, if you would. You make gluten-free rice crispy bars. Mm-hmm. And I have to tell you, I never thought to use brown rice cereal, but espresso toffee chewy crispy bars are on my list of recipes to make. They are really wonderful, and it's easy to find uh, the brown um, crispy rice cereal. Yes. You can find it um, uh, there in most supermarkets, and it's just a way to kind of bump up the, the nutrition by choosing whole grain over refined grain. Yeah, fabulous. Well, congratulations to you. The book is really an extraordinary new way to look at grains, and there's so much delicious inspiration. And the book is available now. It is called Everyday Whole Grains, and it's 175 new recipes from amaranth to wild rice from the executive editor of Cooking Light. She is Anne taylor Pittman. And for food lovers and health conscious eaters alike, this is really an inspiring book that you must add to your collection. And I hope you will come back and share your uh, ideas and inspiration again. I loved having you and I thank you for sharing your passion. Thank you so much. Of course. As the delicious conversation continues, you heard it here, you learned it here, and hopefully we've made you hungry. There's more fabulous food in your radio right after this. Grab a glass and let's toast. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Philip Green is a cocktail snob in a good way, and I like that about him. He's also a cocktail historian and the co-founder of the Museum of the American Cocktail and a Manhattan aficionado. The iconic American invention of 1906, the Manhattan cocktail, changed everything. And in his new book, Philip delves deep into the story of the drink's creation, revealing its profound legacy. The book is called The Manhattan, the story of the first modern cocktail with recipes included. So grab a glass if you're thirsty for a good story. Philip Green is here to dish, and I am glad to have you, Philip. Welcome. Thank you. 
Thank you very much. Yes, of course. Okay, so can you make us a classic Manhattan, please? And we must talk about the cherry. Sure. Um, I'm a fan of both bourbon and rye, and just, just in the same way that vermouth is making a nice comeback, so is rye whiskey. Um, you know, I, I sort of came into the cocktail world through through my distant, distant cousin, Antoine Amade Peychaud, who invented Peychaud's bitters, which are used in the in the Sazerac cocktails. So mm-hmm. it's nice to see that rye whiskey is making making a comeback. And if you so if you want to make an authentic Manhattan circa 1880, you're going to use equal parts uh, rye and or, rye or bourbon and sweet vermouth. And you might just use Angostura bitters, you know, a couple mm-hmm. of dashes of that. Stir it very well with ice and strain it into a chilled um, cocktail glass. A, a coupe is fine. Um, the early, I have a lot of, um, I made use of a lot of archival uh, old cocktail books from the 1880s, 1890s, all the way up to Prohibition. So you start to see that the proportions are shifting from one part uh, vermouth to one part whiskey to two parts whiskey to one part vermouth. But uh, you could use either either rye or bourbon. Um, now, the original the original garnish was was a lemon peel, and that goes back to I think 1884, uh, one of the original cocktail books. It wasn't until the 1890s that you start seeing the, the cherry being mentioned, and it, it was allegedly in, first used as a garnish at the Palmer House in Chicago. Hmm. Um, it's one of these typical cocktail stories where some entrepreneur had way too many cherries on his hand and he started putting them in cocktails and the rest is history. That's how I would make it. Two parts, either rye or bourbon and um, one part sweet vermouth. And I'm not really a brand snob. Uh, I love Sazerac rye whiskey. I love Four Roses uh, bourbon whiskey uh, for rye vermouth. I love Carpano Antica formula, but I'm very happy with Martini or, or Dolan. They're all, they're all tremendous products. I think the book is a great read. It is a, a historical recount of really a wonderful legacy of a cocktail that has brought us far. And I think that your background is a very interesting dichotomy. I'm sure at the end of the day, um, you look forward to and have very much earned uh, the well-deserved Manhattan you sit down to. I would be remiss if I didn't mention that you are the trademark counsel for the U.S. Marine Corps based at the Pentagon. And so you do your due diligence with Manhattans uh, later in the evening, right? Of, of course. When, when I do, <laughs> yes, it's, it's after hours, exactly. Yes. Um, no, I'm very really fortunate impressive. to have the, this position at the Pentagon. Uh, Marine Corps has a tremendous brand, and we license it to companies that make and sell Marine Corps-themed merchandise, and Mm. we can use the royalty revenue to support Wounded Warrior activities. So it's a great program. Well, thank you um, for your uh, tremendous service. And at the same time, we thank you for sharing the story of the Manhattan. For food lovers and cocktail aficionados everywhere, uh, this is no doubt a, a wonderful read and makes for terrific cocktail conversation. He is cocktail historian Philip Green, and he traces the evolution of the Manhattan with vintage photographs and 65 thirst-quenching recipes, along with uh, a very true and wonderful story of the first modern cocktail. His book is entitled The Manhattan, and you'll find it available now. You can follow him on Facebook at The Manhattan Cocktail. And Philip, I thank you for sharing your passion. Thank you.
And so that brings us to the end of another hour of gastronomic inspiration for this July 4th holiday weekend. I'll leave you with my last bite, my last ounce or tidbit of culinary conversation for the hour. So we all know that the grill cooks up a delicious steak or a better burger, right? But did you know that you can also use your barbecue to pop popcorn? Oh, yes. And it's amazing because that smoky flavor from the grill permeates the popcorn kernels and you really do get fabulous flavor and you can season the popcorn in every way imaginable according to your palate. It's true all popcorn kernels really need is an adequate source of heat for them to pop into a delicious snack. So... I make sweet and spicy grilled popcorn, and this is what you do. You place a tablespoon of vegetable oil and a quarter cup of popcorn kernels in a disposable aluminum pie pan. You cover the pan loosely with heavy-duty aluminum foil, and you make a dome, like the popcorn that you remember cooking on top of the stove in years past, and you make sure that you seal it tightly, that dome of aluminum foil, over the aluminum pie pan. Then you set the pie pan on your barbecue at medium high heat. You close the lid and you wait until the popcorn starts to pop. And once you start to hear the kernels popping, open the grill and use tongs to shake the pan like you used to with that metal handle gently from side to side. And once the kernels stop popping or you hear just the last few, you want to transfer the popcorn immediately to a serving bowl so that the kernels on the bottom don't burn. And meanwhile, I combine in a small mixing bowl a little bit of granulated sugar with sea salt and chipotle chili powder, so that smoky fabulous flavor. And while the popcorn is hot, I sprinkle the mixture for sweet and spicy grilled popcorn over. And then I grab a cocktail and toast because cocktails and popcorn are a perfect compliment. And so cheers to your July 4th weekend. I hope that you have a brilliant barbecue and that you spend time with family and friends celebrating our land of the free and home of the brave, as we go way beyond mere eating and drinking, bringing insight into the wide world of food. I'll post the sweet and spicy grilled popcorn recipe on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen, and hope that you'll check out chefjamie.com as I'm always serving up seconds. Thank you for listening. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off. I hope you continue to eat well.